thank you so much for tuning in to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and in this podcast, we aim to talk about the evidence and reasons for why the Christian faith is true and why it is good. We do this with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around us and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. everybody. Welcome back to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and this is the first interview for our third season. It's good to be back. As most of you know, our episodes are pre-recorded because I'm still in school. I'm a full-time student at Washita Baptist University in Arkansas. And so because of that, uh, like I said, this is pre-recorded. Um, but today we have a, a very special guest. He's been on the show before, Dr. Kenneth Samples. He he was on the show, uh, I think it was the last episode of season one, actually, uh, talked about Christianity and Islam, and we cross-examined them. As, as we're basically asking, were they really the same faith? Many people say that they're the same faith, that they have the same gods. Uh, but actually, he has written a new book called Christianity Cross-Examined. The subtitle is, Is It Rational, Relevant, and Good? He's a philosopher and theologian. He has a passion for helping people understanding the truthfulness and the relevance of Christianity. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe Ministry and the author of several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers and God Among Sages. As I said, he's been a, he's been a part of the show before. We've had him uh, once, uh, and it's good to have him again. Uh, Dr. Samples, how are you? It's good to be with you. It's nice to see you again. So we're talking about your book, Christianity Cross-Examined, again. Uh, and you mentioned in our first interview, I remember, I don't remember if it was the beginning or the end of that interview, but you mentioned about how you would go on these college campuses for years and most of the questions would be about the truthfulness of Christianity. And, and you mentioned how in recent years it's shifted to whether or not Christianity or God is, are actually good. And you talked about that in the, in the introduction here of your, of your book, Christianity Cross-Examined. Could you just expound on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, before I worked at Reasons to Believe, um, back in the late 1980s, I worked at the Christian Research Institute with Walter Martin. He was the original Bible Answer Man. So my apologetic uh, career or vocation, if you will, uh, began about 35 years ago. And in those days, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when I would go to the college campus, maybe give a, uh, a talk to students, sometimes even to faculty, uh, the questions were very much truth questions. They were questions about God's existence, uh, the truth of Christianity regarding was Jesus the Son of God? Was he raised from the dead? Now, moving forward, I wor I've worked at Reasons to Believe for 25 years, and I noticed about 10 or 12 years ago that when I would go to the university that I still got truth questions, but I noticed they started to change. And they seemed like they were raising questions about the goodness of Christianity, uh, whether the God of the Old Testament was the same God as Jesus. Uh, they raised questions about, has, was Christianity good for racial minorities? And I thought to myself then that maybe in apologetics, we need to address both the truth question as well as whether Christianity is good. Tim Keller, who has written a very successful book on apologetics as a pastor of a very large church in New York City. Keller said that in his own personal experience, he found that people had to want to believe before they could believe. And I think in light of the new atheism, which, you know, sought to kind of tear down the goodness of Christianity, I thought that an apologetic 
book that would write on both of those was needed. And so that was really the shaping of the uh, structure of my book, Christianity Cross-Examined. You do a good job of addressing both sides of the spectrum there, and you address it in two separate parts. So it's easy to, to see how you've split the two up. Is Christianity good? Is Christianity rational? And you address the rational side of it first. Uh, just briefly, could you, is there any reason why, why there's one before the other? We should establish its rationality before its goodness. Yes, I, I think that there are two kinds of atheists. Now, this is like a thought experiment. I'm using here kind of a paradigm or a model. I'm not saying all atheists fit into these two types, but I've run into two types of atheists. I've read uh, atheists from both points. Uh, one would be an atheist who would say, hey, look, um, you know, it might be a good thing if God existed. Maybe there would be more meaning and purpose to the universe. Maybe I would survive the death of my body. Maybe I'd be reunited with my loved ones. Problem is, it's not rational. There's Christianity and God's existence are uh, impossible. Uh, that's that's kind of one view. I think, mm -hmm. to some extent, maybe Graham Oppie, who is a very uh, distinguished leading atheist, he might fit into that category. Another type of atheist would be someone who says, "Oh no, I think there are there are at least arguments, and some of them pretty formidable arguments for God and for Christianity." However, I don't want that God to exist. Um, you know, I, I think you find atheists who fit into that category as, uh, as well. Um, and so what I try to do is I first lay down what I think are good reasons for Christianity being rational. And then once we can do that, we can then say, okay, um, but has Christianity been good for the world? So I, I have a sense that you have to deal with the truth question first. And then, then you can move to its relevance uh, and its goodness. But uh, I think we see both of those uh, types of atheists. And I think, you know, you're, you're a young Christian apologist. I suspect that as you get older and continue to do your work, you're going to continue to have to touch upon both of those, truth and goodness, because uh, I'm not sure the new atheists are very formidable. I think the old atheists are much more formidable. People like Nietzsche, Sartre, A.J. Ayer, uh, and company like that. And I think the old atheists were more formidable because they understood Christianity. At that time, they had to. Uh, some of them even went to Christian universities. But I think if the new atheism has been successful, they've been successful in kind of tearing down uh, the goodness of the Christian faith. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the new atheists. Are, is that, are those the ones who would fall on the side of Christianity isn't good? I think that's exactly right. Uh, I okay. mean, Christopher Hitchens it was, in my opinion, a, a rhetorician. He was very skilled in the use of language. Um, you know, he, he says that religion ruins everything. And I think Sam Harris, in many ways, is the same way. He was more, he's more of a rhetorician than he is, uh, you know, a philosophical thinker. Yeah. And, you know, uh, people like Richard Dawkins is the same way. Um, I think they attacked uh, Christianity, and I think they exaggerated uh, the dark side of Christianity. It's, it's, not that Christ, it's not that Christians have always done the right thing. There have been times in church history that I think we have to admit uh, Christians in leadership made deep errors. But I think for the most part, Christianity has been enormously good for the world. And you see that, by the way, you see that in secular people like Tom Holland, um, uh, and Murray, and, and, and even Jordan Peterson, who are not necessarily Christian, but they think Christianity has been good for the world. 
Yeah, that, that's a good point. Christopher Hitchens was one of the first people uh, that came to mind for me whenever you were describing them. So I'm going to go through a couple of these uh, chapters you have here and just kind of pepper you with some questions that you've already dealt with uh, just to get give the audience a feel for what you're dealing with in the book, if that's okay. Yes. So you, you deal with science in the first two chapters. Uh, science and Christianity are incompatible or who needs science, uh, Christianity when we have science? Uh, could you uh, kind of elaborate on on those and what you're trying to do there? Yeah, a lot of people... Uh, a lot of secular people think that uh, the more we explore science, the more scientific discovery we experience, the less and less God is necessary. And so science has kind of put God out of business. So, um, you know, he, he's no longer necessary to explain certain things. And what I do in that first chapter is I say, that's not true. Um, you know, if you go back to the early part of the 20th century, there were many secular scientists then who thought, uh, well, we're discovering more about the universe. We'll have to, we'll rely less on religious explanations. Um, and yet what we discovered in the 20th century was that God remains necessary. I mean, uh, the major uh, model for explaining the universe today uh, remains Big Bang cosmology. That goes back uh, into the 1950s. Uh, it's still held by the vast majority of cosmologists in the world. There are debates about the multiverse and some of the other things, but by the 1960s, it was very clear that the universe was not viewed as eternal, just kind of a brute reality that was there. Rather, Big Bang cosmology said that the universe seems to have an origin. It seems to have had a beginning. And, you know, this was an appeal to a, a lot of scientific data. We can also look at other, another area, rather than the universe being just explainable in terms of natural processes, we discovered that the extreme fine-tuning of the universe, that the origin of the universe had to be uh, carefully fine-tuned, that the fundamental constants of physics had to be carefully fine-tuned. Uh, we can even go further that the, the life on planet Earth, the habitable zone, if you will, that human beings live in regard to our planet, our relationship to our star, the sun, uh, the moon, that it appears that all of this had to be carefully fine-tuned. I like to use the analogy of somebody on a board where, where all of these dials have to be fine-tuned. And of course, if any of these constants were more or less, even a little less or a little more, life wouldn't be possible. Uh, it seems like somebody has designed this. And I also look at, at human beings, uh, even though evolution has become uh, the major explanation of the origin of human beings, you know, humans don't, don't appear to be just different in kind. Humans appear, excuse me, humans aren't just different in degree, they're different in kind. This is known as human exceptionalism. I think human exceptionalism is what the Bible would have predicted. So rather than thinking that the 20th century would put God to bed, put him out of business, I think God is right at the heart of our scientific discovery. And of course, in chapter two, I argue that to have science at all, you have to have certain assumptions. Uh, you have to believe that there's a real world out there that's independent of our minds. You have to be able to trust your cognitive faculties and sensory organs. Math and logic have to work. The universe has to have a uniformity. Well, all of those presuppositions came out of the early emergence of science in the 17th century in Christian Europe. So rather than say science is 
a foe to Christianity. I think history reveals that Christianity and science have usually been very friendly. So I don't see science as a threat. I see um, I see a Christian worldview as as being having a lot of explanatory power when it comes to the universe in which we live. So you would say that whenever people would embark on scientific discoveries uh, and predict that God would no longer be necessary, rather what they found were that science um, assumes God. I, I think so. I think that uh, I think the origin of the universe, I think the fine-tuning in the universe, I, I think even the idea of human beings, um, that, that science fits well with a, with a theistic or a biblically mm-hmm. theistic model. You, you talk about general revelation and specific revelation and about how when we're interpreting scripture, which I love this section, by the way, when interpreting scripture, uh, sometimes on the surface, it may seem that there's a contradiction between what we find in scripture, which is specific revelation, and what we find in the natural world, which is general revelation. And whenever that happens, we need to reinterpret either one or the other. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, in Christian history, um, theologians, this goes back probably even before St. Augustine, but we find it in St. Augustine, and we find it in Catholic and Protestant thinkers through the centuries, and that is that uh, that God has revealed himself in two books. Uh, you referenced general revelation. Well, general revelation, thinking of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Thinking of Romans 1, God has revealed himself to us in our, in our conscience. So general revelation is a knowledge of God that goes out to all the world. Special revelation is a revelatory book. Um, it's the Bible. It is a revelation that came first to the Hebrews, uh, then in the person of Christ. So general revelation is God's revelation in the world. Uh, biblical revelation, of course, is this unique propositional book. Well, the, the idea there is that God has two books. One of them is a literal book with a spine and pages. That's the Bible. The other is a figurative book. It, nature is uh, a book, but it's but it doesn't have spine and and pages. Rather, it's like a repository of knowledge. It's kind of like a huge library. <clears throat> so we get it in science, we get it in philosophy, we get it in psychology. And <clears throat> as you noted, the, both of those books have to be interpreted. And it is possible they could conflict, but it may not be that there's a real contradiction. It could be that we're misreading one book or the other. And uh, I think that this is a very powerful metaphor. And if, you know, if, if God created the world and God is the author of Scripture, then if we understand them properly, they will cohere. And um, I think that that's a very uh, unique model. It's different than Hinduism. It, to some extent, it's different than even uh, Islam. And I think many, many of Christianity's greatest scientists look at the world that way, the book of nature, the book of Scripture. Yeah, I, I think it is unique and different from Islam, especially because if, if I recall, and you can correct me on this, uh, Islam is very strict about, you know, the, the Quran specifically, there are no translations in the Islamic faith. Right. And once they were seeing some contradictions between the Quran and uh, natural revelation or the natural sciences, whatever, they just completely uh, got out of the uh, scientific discovery uh, unit, if you will. And, and kind of just stuck to what they believed from the Quran. Is that correct? Well, Islam has always had a very strong sense that their book is more compatible with science than, than the Judeo-Christian book. 
But um, as you mentioned, uh, part of the problem is that the Quran, you don't have textual criticism because you don't have uh, copies, you don't have versions. Uthman, who was one of the early leaders following the death of Muhammad, he chose one version of the Quran and had all the others burned. I'm told, however, that there have been discoveries of, of copies of the Quran uh, that have been discovered in, in the Middle East, and they differ with the official Quran. So that'll be interesting to see what Islam does with the idea that maybe they don't have a single version. I would say, however, that Muslims have uh, traditionally been interested in science. And, and in fact, I think if you listen to some of their apologists, they claim that they invented science. I don't think that that is borne out in history. I think science began once. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Chinese civilization, um, the Greco-Roman civilization, there were many contributions towards science and technology. But I think history bears out the idea that science began once, and it was in Christian Europe. Uh, that was the revelation, uh, the revolution, I should say, of the 1600s. Mm -hmm. So what about the idea that uh, faith and reason are incompatible, that in order to have faith in God, you must first forsake your uh, capacity to reason and your use of logic, that the two don't go hand in hand, that they're mutually exclusive? I think that's a very important topic because I think there are lots of non-Christians who think, you know, faith is blind in Christianity. Faith and reason don't fit. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's oil and water in their minds. It, you can't bring them together. But I think that when you begin to look at Christianity, Christianity has always had a very high view of reason. I mean, after all, we're made in the image of God. Part of that image is likely to be our, our ability to reason, our ability to think. And in fact, that's what we've discovered in science, that one of the major differences between human beings and animals, as, as remarkable and wonderful as the animals are, they don't have the capacity for symbolic speech. They don't have the intellectual, rational uh, capabilities that human beings have. But let's talk a little bit about faith and reason. I mean, the definition of faith, um, I like what St. Augustine says here, and, and his definition has influenced church history, um, you know, that, that faith is confident trust in a reliable source. So what's interesting about that definition, and, and you know, people like Thomas Aquinas picked it up, other people have picked it up, it's known as faith-seeking understanding. Well, it, well, if faith is confident trust in a reliable source, then you have reason right there. You don't put your faith in unreliable sources, you put your faith in sources that are reliable. Now, what are reliable sources? Well, it could be your parents, it could be uh, science, it could be revelation. So it, it seems to me that if you explore Christianity, you begin to see that Christians believe that reason and faith are compatible with each other. Uh, another feature that comes out of that kind of general principle, faith-seeking understanding, is that to have faith, you have to have knowledge. I mean, to be a Christian, you have to believe that there was this historic person named Jesus, that he lived a sinless life, that he did miracles, that he was risen from the dead. That is to have saving faith, you have to believe and you have to have knowledge. So uh, faith involves knowledge and I would argue is, is compatible with reason. I mean, even Christian doctrines that are mysterious, I mean, the Trinity is a divine mystery, so is the incarnation. 
But Christians have never treated them as if those great doctrines are somehow irrational. I mean, even when we define the Trinity, we say that God is one being, three persons. That is, uh, in God's essence or being, he's one. But the way in which God is three doesn't violate his oneness because it is in terms of his personhood. Philosophically, we might say God is one what and three who's. Mm-hmm. With the incarnation, Jesus is a single person with two distinct natures. Again, Christian authors of the creeds, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Nicene Creed, even the Apostles' Creed, they seem to recognize the importance that uh, Christian theology cannot violate reason. We, we may not ever be able to get, totally get our minds around it and totally comprehend it, but it seems to me Christian thinkers through the centuries have valued revelation and reason. And so there's evidence for Jesus's existence. There's evidence for his resurrection. Uh, there is evidence that, um, uh, that the biblical God is who he said he was. So unfortunately, a lot of people think that Christianity is a blind faith, but it's not. It, it is what I would call a reasonable faith. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians even promote that, that kind of caricature. Um, But contrary to that, is I mean, Scripture, it's pretty obvious once you look at Scripture that God does intend for us to to know what we believe and why we believe it, that he doesn't expect us to have blind faith. Uh, You see in the Gospels, Jesus sums up the law, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength and mind. Uh, Paul in Acts goes into the synagogue debating and reasoning from the Scriptures, and he also reasons from what um, from other philosophical works in the known area. Uh, Peter calls us in first Peter three to give a reason for why we believe what we believe. Yes. So, I mean, there's just a lot uh, there and it's just evidence. Isaiah, God says, come, let us you know, reason together. So it's pretty evident that Christians are supposed to use their reasoning faculties as a way of knowing what they believe and why they believe it and to have faith in God. Uh, and, and, and as you point out, unfortunately, sometimes Christians, contribute to that caricature. Um, And I would say sometimes Christians can be anti-intellectual. But as you point out, Jesus and the apostles, they said, hey, take a look and see, investigate my claims. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think that's a very powerful historical evidential side of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite verses from the Gospels is John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus, Jesus performed many other miracles that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So the entire, you know, John's saying, I I wrote this as evidence that you would believe and have life in Jesus' name. And and that's pretty profound. So he's saying, don't just believe it. Like his signs are the proof of it. And he says, he says this again in Matthew, Matthew seven, I believe, or 11, one or the other, where John the Baptist is doubting. And he says, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus doesn't say, go back and tell John to have faith. He, he says, look at what I'm doing. Look at the signs. That's how you'll know. So, and he does that in his resurrection, Thomas, you know, mm-hmm, take mm-hmm. a look at the wounds, put your finger here, put your hand in my side. I, I think that's a very powerful point that the apostles and Jesus himself, they invite careful investigation. They don't shy away from it. Mm-hmm. Faith is not blind. Uh, faith is uh, based upon a reliable uh, truth claims. Yeah, that, that makes me realize, you know, many people are skeptical about people who claim something but won't let you question them, right? Like, don't question me. Who are you to question me? And many, many 
uh, religions are, are kind of like that, especially Islam, if I remember. Like, they're pretty defensive when, when it comes to that. But Christianity invites inquiry, historical, scientific. I mean, I, I think that's that, that that should at least give somebody pause and, and consider if Christianity is, is one who is a religion who invites questions, yep. then that might give them more credibility, give the faith more credibility. And you can have doubts. And yeah. yet there are people who overcome their doubts because they see uh, reason and evidence and and a rational explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've written a couple articles on, on doubt and and if Christians should have blind faith. And one of the two things I point out is one that in that passage where John doubted and, and Jesus didn't rebuke him, he, he gave him evidence. Yeah. In that same passage, just a little while, a little ways down, Jesus said, of all who were born of women, um, John is is first or John is is greater than these or something like that. So he kind of promotes John. And, you know, I think doubting in itself isn't wrong, but it's where we take our doubt. Yeah. If we take it to Jesus and let him answer it and if we're truly seeking truth, I think we're OK. I think once we look the other way or run from God because of our doubt, I think that's where we might end up in some trouble. And, you know, people, some people have doubts based upon whether Christianity is factually true. Mm -hmm. Other people have psychological doubts. That is, they're, maybe they have experiences in life that cause them to not trust authority figures. So yeah. doubts, you know, being a human being, we are limited, we're finite. I don't think that, like you, I don't think doubts are bad, but I think they need to be appropriately addressed. Yeah, there's definitely a way to do it, a healthy way to do it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Defending Christianity Podcast. I hope and pray that you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you're someone who's seeking truth, I hope and pray that you have gotten closer to that because Jesus is the truth. Join us next time on the Defending Christianity Podcast. God bless.